All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 173. Jason Lingren is with me. We're going to be capping off the kind of myth-based episodes that we've been delivering. On this one, we're going to seek to endeavor to show some people things that have been left out of modern schools, which everybody used to understand. And if you don't have a basic understanding of Greek and then more importantly, sometimes Roman myth, which is Greek myth ported over for a more modern era, then you are missing so much information in the art you see, in the movies you see. And as we point out, why do you suppose it is in the latest Pirates of the Caribbean, they're after Poseidon's trident? Why do you think they did the same thing again with the new Aquaman? I'm just saying, did you understand it or did you get caught up in the entertainment? Are you understanding the information put before you, or is it poking you in the eye as it flies over your head? Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren and lay down some facts about myth. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 173. Jason Lingren is with me, and we're going to kind of cap off uh, what we've laid down over the last three episodes. I often tell people that I like to get old books that are before what I call the modern edit. Now, if you get back into the 1800s or what's claimed to be all that time ago and you start to read things, if you don't have a basic grasp of what's called the classics, you don't understand what's being said. Little little sly things they'll say, like Cupid showed up or any number of things. And without understanding the classics, which is what we've been covering, um, you don't understand the modern code. You don't understand basically half the ideas that are being thrown right in front of you. And this goes straight into Hollywood movies. I can't tell you how many Hollywood movies I've seen where if I didn't understand uh, classic Greek myth or the Roman port over, uh, I would be missing the poke in the eye or the, the insider pun. But anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a fine, hot Louisiana morning to you. Not here, man. We are about to get quite a bit of rain today. Uh, just came out of Michigan. Uh, our common friend there had the storm last night, said it dumped. But what do we have for the intro here? I've done two shows. Um, I got out in front of a new audience. There was a young man from a YouTube channel called MG The Future. Uh, it's primarily a music channel, but he did the interview, um, and I think there's a pretty positive reception there that I've seen so far. Again, that channel is MG The Future. And the other thing I did was Marty Leeds, and I know he's already posted that. Uh, I know that it's been up a bit. Uh, what do you got? We are going to be doing a showing of Shoot the Moon and a little mini-conference being put on by our friend Billy Ray Valentine. And I just got a message from him about a moment ago that he wants to move it to the 20th instead of the 19th of October because Mark Devlin, who is going to be one of the speakers, is getting in late off of his plane from the UK that night. Okay, so I'm guessing Rose is listening. We need to get into the Crow 777 radio forum and adjust uh, the date. So that would be uh, October the 20th um, of this year. We'll be doing a, a screening of Shoot the Moon, uh, Mark Devlin, who, who's uh, Wayne McCroy, who, who's all going to be there? John Brissom is the other fellow. He's someone that Billy Ray knows, and he does work on vaccines and all that, from what I understand. I'll definitely look into that more so that I have all of the relevant information once Billy Ray has this completely finalized and we'll be making announcements everywhere. Okay. Um, so on, on the Facebook for Crow 777 Radio, it will be there. And um, for members on Crow 777 Radio, the forum, the main forum, there's a thread that will be following all this. Um, and as 
this all gets available, we'll let you know. But a lot of people are already saying they're going to be there. And I may actually be showing up for the first time in person if I can duck out from under my responsibilities here, which it's looking like I may be able to do. Oh, that's amazing. I was kind of thinking we were just going to do a hook you up to Skype kind of thing. But if you can be there in person, it should be quite an event. Well, Billy Ray lives there. So um, I think I can get someone to cover for me for like maybe two days and we'll see what happens. Anyhow, we're going to be covering um, the old Greek and Roman myths. And the main reason here is because I'm guessing there's a lot of people out there who, if they heard the name of any given mythical character, um, they would not recognize it, nor would they recognize what's being communicated when that's talked about. Let's just get, for the last time before we jump in, one thing straight. From my point of view, we're not talking about gods and goddesses. Um, I don't except that the people in these times, whenever that may have been, looked at these ideas as gods or goddesses. They were looking at basically two things, aspects of nature and what it means to be human. Um, when we're talking about love, uh, there's Eros or any number of descriptive mythical characters that describe these ideas that human beings go through. So from my point of view, when you're talking about Zeus or Jupiter or Saturn or any of them, Hercules, you are talking about aspects of nature. And just to put a fine point on it, if you remember way back when we were going through the sky clock information, Hercules is almost always playing the role of the sun in the 12 months of the acceptable year of the Lord. You can even go to the Vatican courtyard there and recognize that the statue they are concealing there is actually Hercules. And the reason you know it's Hercules is because he's holding the club and he's wearing the Cleonian lion skin. That proves outright that that is, in fact, Hercules. Um, so you can see what goes on here. They're hiding meanings because nobody in the current age gets taught this stuff anymore. Anyhow, Jace, it's all you. The sad truth is, these stories, the myths and legends of old, were part of what would be considered a classical education, which is certainly not what is taught in this modern, common core, disgusting insanity that they teach kids these days. Well, tr truth be told, what, what's gone on here, if you go way back to the Greek myths, they're basically talking about truths, about what it means to be a living human being in this natural world. That's what they're talking about. Um, and these stories are the basis for almost every other story you're ever going to hear. I don't give a damn whether it comes from Hollywood or your favorite novel writer is writing something. Almost certainly they are drawing on one of these basic archetypes. And the reason for that is because there are so many truths in nature. And these were the way they were schematized back in the day. And then later on, of course, Rome got a hold of all of them and repurposed it to their ends. And that's what sets the stage for the modern era. And there you have it. So the Greek stories came before the Roman. So this is where we shall draw from first. While we go through the myths, keep in mind the archetypes in nature that they are describing and think about how much of it still relates to our world of science and sterility that is seriously overthought on so many levels. These stories also had subtle variations in their narrations, depending on the teller of the tales. So if you think things may have gone a little differently in the way you heard them, there's a good possibility that that's true. There were quite a few variations as the years went by with the same general storylines. Right. I would point out, you can still go to booksellers and get the old 
gold standard versions of these myths, but even the ones that are slightly different, they're still holding basically the same ideas. They've just been tweaked a little bit. We begin with chaos. Chaos translates from the Greek as the gaping void. In the beginning of the Greek creation story, chaos was a state of random disorder existing in primordial emptiness. Chaos was the first thing to exist. Later, a cosmic egg formed in chaos's belly, and it hatched, producing the first deities into the darkness. Chaos was often thought of to be female, possessing both anthropomorphic and tangible qualities. However, this interpretation would change as the mythology evolved over the years, according to different historians and poets. The far-reaching idea is that chaos is a space that separates and divides the earth and the sky. Chaos would also go on to be considered a dwelling place. So I'm guessing that a lot of people out there raised in the West as a Christian um, see the parallels in the story that we just told or from lifted from the old Greek myths and the book of Genesis. Um, you can see there are so many truths in this world and they get retold and retold and retold. And it really doesn't matter whether you're talking about world religions or modern entertainment for that matter. Um, these stories are all we have to work with. Uh, I, it's, it's almost like nobody can invent another truth and add it to what's already been laid out here. From chaos is birthed three more primordial deities. These would be Gaia, or Earth, Tartarus, the underworld, and Eros, love. Once love existed, Gaia and Chaos, both of whom are female deities, were able to procreate and begin shaping the universe. So even just knowing the names, knowing that Gaia is a representation of Earth, I'm guessing there's a lot of people out there doing versions of Russian research um, that could take an interest in the Tartarus idea that we're laying down here, and they could look that up in myth. And just let me reiterate one more time. If you even go back into writings from like the 1800s, 1700s, uh, how many people out there are aware that when a man gave a woman a bunch of flowers— it was more than just saying, I like you or I love you, here's a gift. The color of the flowers they were being presented with had a meaning. The type of flower they were given had a meaning. The number in the bouquet had a meaning. Um, we've mostly lost this, although with roses in the modern age, we still kind of have some of this. People understand that when they give a red rose, it's not the same as giving a yellow rose. But for the most part, these ideas are lost. And so when you look at old artworks and you do not understand these things, all you can do is say it's beautiful and you have no concept of the meaning that is placed within the art. Chaos gave birth to Erebus, or darkness, and Nyx, or night. Erebus would have relations with his sister Nyx, and out of this union, Aether, the bright upper air, and Himera, the day, would emerge. Afterward, feared by everyone but her brother, Nyx fashioned a family of haunting forces on her own. Among those of her children were the hateful Moros, or fate, the black Kerr, or doom, Thanatos, or death, Hypnos, or sleep, Onieri, or dreams, Geras, or old age, Oizus, or pain, 
nemesis or revenge, eris or strife, apate or deceit, philates or sexual pleasure, mamos or blame, and the Hesperides or the daughters of the evening. Meanwhile, Gaea gave birth alone to Uranus, known as the Starry Sky or Father Sky, although some stories cite Aether as Uranus's father. It is interesting to note that the symbol for Uranus is the zodiac wheel. Uranus would become Gaea's husband and would surround her from all sides. Together, they produced three sets of children, the three one-eyed Cyclopses, the three hundred-handed Hecatoncheries, and the twelve Titans. All right, so now we're kind of getting up to where things are going to be more modern, but let's just pull a couple of these things out. So back in the day when um, alchemy was the main thing, uh, a version of science based only within what nature will allow, uh, the fifth element becomes ether. Here it is, outlined for the first time out of the union of darkness, um, when we finally start to get the maybe the the idea that's expressed in the Bible in Genesis, then there's light. But think about this. What's the what's the most popular movie of all time now? It's one of the Marvel ones. Well, you just heard that Thanatos or Death is one of the characters being outlined. Where do you think Thanos is getting his little mythical character? Um, it's all here, and it helps to know these things when you're looking at a modern world. As stated, Uranus was the primordial god of the sky. The ancient Greeks imagined the sky as a solid dome of brass, decorated with stars, whose edges descended to rest upon the outermost limits of the flat earth. Uranus was the literal sky, just as Gaia was the earth. Uranus does not appear in early Greek art, but Egyptian depictions of their sky goddess Nut demonstrate how he was imagined which was as a gigantic, star-spangled man with long arms and legs resting on all fours, with his fingertips in the east, his toes in the far west, and his arching body raised to form the dome of the sky. In the Roman era, which came later, he was often depicted as Aeon, god of eternal time, in the form of a man holding the zodiac wheel standing above the reclining Gaia. And this kind of proves the point that nobody thought of these things as gods. Um, you can tell by the porting over into Rome. It's just representations of a thing so that you can schematize it, so that you can think about it, so that you can strive to know these things. Or like I said before, victory. Well, victory is not a thing you can hold or smell or touch, so you've got to give it a name. Then you personify it. Now you can talk and seek to know victory. That's the kind of idea going on here. But let's go back. So the earliest part of this bullet point, which will echo all the flat earth concerns out there in the world today, uh, all the Christian concerns who accept that the Bible says there's a firmament, and all the others who talk about a dome. The Greeks imagined the sky as a solid dome of brass. See, now you're starting to get to the roots of the ideas that still echo into the modern age. Uranus was a cruel husband and an even crueler father. He hated his children and did not want to allow them to see the light of day. So he imprisoned them into the hidden places of the earth, which is Gaia's womb. This angered Gaia, and she plotted with her sons against Uranus. She made a harp, a great adamant sickle, and tried to incite her children to attack Uranus. All were too afraid, except the youngest titan, called 
Cronus. Gaea and Cronus set up an ambush for Uranus. As he was preparing to lay with Gaea, Cronus castrated him with the sickle, throwing his severed genitals into the ocean. It is unclear as to what happened to Uranus afterward. He either died, withdrew from the earth, or exiled himself to Italy. From the blood that was spilled on the earth due to his castration would emerge the giants, the Meliae or the ash tree nymphs, and the Aranyes or the Furies. From the sea foam that was produced when his genitals fell into the ocean arose Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. All right, so let's ask the simple question here. Now you've just heard the origin story of one of the main mythical ideas that's in our world today and the form of Kronos. Well, that's, that's Saturn. That, that whole story is telling the Saturnalian idea. So maybe you know something now that you weren't aware of before. Anyhow, the son of Uranus, uh, and he castrates his father. The versions I'm familiar with uh, is he doesn't kill him, but he does castrate him. Cronus becomes the next ruler. He imprisoned the Cyclops and the Hecatonchres in Tartarus and set the dragoness Campe to guard them. He married his sister, the Titaness Rhea, who bore him five children. However, Gaia and Uranus had both prophesied that Cronus would eventually be overthrown by one of his sons. So, much like his father, Cronus maltreated his children, devouring each of them at the time of their birth. Rhea was distressed by Cronus' treatment of her children and, just like Gaia before him, plotted against her husband. On the advice of her mother Gaia, when it was time to give birth to her sixth child, Rhea hid herself on Crete leaving the newborn child, named Zeus, to be raised by the nymphs of the island. To conceal her act, she wrapped a stone in swaddling clothes and passed it off as the supposed baby Zeus to Cronus, who, unaware of her intentions, swallowed it. Okay, so in one way you can almost look at these tales. Some of them are quite fantastic, and you're thinking, who would buy into this? But that's not really the point. They're communicating aspects of nature and ideas here, and some of them go pretty deep. Uh, one of the things probably being communicated here is there the idea there was an age when Saturn or Cronus was the chief of whatever you want to say. Um, now we're seeing Zeus come into the picture. So the difference between these two archetypes is that one is very constricting based in time, dark, cold, and the other one is the opposite. That'd be Zeus. We even have words, Jove, which give us the word jovial, which mean happy. So it's almost like it's also illustrating eon changes or something to that effect. The child Zeus was raised by the nymphs Adrastia and Ida, as well as the she-goat Amalthea. He quickly grew into a handsome youth in a cave on the Cretan mountain Ida. When the time came, he left Crete to ask his future wife, the Titaness Metis, or Wisdom, for advice on how to defeat his father Cronus. She answered by preparing a drink indistinguishable from Cronus' favorite wine, but designed to make him vomit for a long period of time. Zeus disguised himself as the god's cupbearer, and, after a time, successfully slipped Matus' drink to Cronus. Cronus consumed the liquid and started vomiting, spilling out all of Zeus's five siblings, but only after throwing up the stone. Called Omphalos, or the navel, 
The stone was later set up at Delphi by two eagles Zeus sent to meet at the center of the world. Overwhelmed with gratitude, Rhea's children, named Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, and Poseidon, all recognized Zeus as their leader. So here it is, all those, all those supposed gods and goddesses that were just named, most people are familiar with them. Now these are going to be the basis. Um, we're up to a point where the names you hear now will be a basis for like, endless movies, so many movies. And they're not always calling them by name, but they're almost always reflecting what any of these mythical figures was was meant to mean. Um, and I know I didn't describe that very well, but the point is when you get up to Demeter, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, most people are familiar with these names, but maybe not what they represent. Despite the freeing of the younger gods, Cronus was still in command and was yet to be defeated. Cronus was too old to protect himself from the attacks of his children, so he enlisted the help of the Titans, who also feared the new generation of gods. This became a decade-long war between the Titans and the Olympians, and would be called the Titanomachy. Atlas became the Titans' leader and led his armies on to many victories. At one point, it seemed that Zeus would be defeated in this war. However, at the advice of Gaia, he went to Tartarus and released the Cyclops and the Hecantachores. In gratitude, the Cyclops provided Zeus with his signature Thunderbolt. They also created a trident for Poseidon and a helmet of invisibility for Hades. This enabled the balance of power to shift in Zeus's favor. There's so much information that we're probably not even aware of that's been lost um, since classic education has fallen so far from us now. But people that go back and read about these things can start to get insight um, about these archetypes that are the basis for every story you're ever going to hear in this world, uh, regardless of its source. But as I, every time I go back through these, I, I recognize the fact that there's so much more being transmitted that I can pick up on um, that's temporarily lost information. The final victory for Zeus would not be the result of brute force, but a cunning trick, sometimes attributed to Prometheus, who had deserted from the Titan's army. Armed with boulders, Hecantanchores set an ambush for the Titans. At the right time, Zeus retreated his forces, drawing the Titans into the Hecantanchores' trap. The hundred-handed ones started raining down hundreds of boulders with such a fury that the titans thought the mountains were falling down upon them. They retreated, and Zeus finally considered himself the king of the universe. Zeus then exiled the titans who had fought against him into Tartarus. He made an exception with Atlas, however. Atlas, being the leader of the opposing force, was punished to hold the universe on his shoulders. Quite a bit going on here, um, but it is the first mention of Prometheus, and I'll remind everybody again, um, the older Promethean tale is basically a one-to-one -one allegory with the Luciferian tale, um, though the Luciferian tale has slightly different intents put on it. But for the people who don't remember, Prometheus in, in the back older Greek myths saw human beings suffering on the earth and he wanted to give the human beings fire and he was told by the gods no you can't do that you do not have permission to do that he did it anyways and he paid a hell-bent toll um, there are versions where he's chained to a rock and there's an eagle eating his liver basically pointing out that that the price that was paid was significant but you should understand that this is the pre-runner of the luciferian myth 
So to be clear, um, the Promethean myth is the forerunner of the Luciferian myths ideas. It's almost one-to-one, but again, uh, there are distinct differences in the modern Luciferian telling. Zeus' status would be challenged on few occasions after this. Just after the Titanomachy, his grandmother Gaia, outraged by the imprisonment of her children, issued forth one last child of hers, the monstrous Typhon. He was so fearsome that most of the gods fled the second they saw him. However, Zeus did not flee or even hesitate. He faced the monster and, using the power of his lightning bolts, was able to defeat it. Typhon was subsequently buried under Mount Etna in Sicily. It is said that you can still hear him growling under the volcano, and that someday in the distant future, he will return to challenge Zeus once more. Yeah, you have to wonder if, you know, ideas that we have in the modern era like Typhoon are based on the idea of Typhon. Hard to know. Definitely sounds like it, that's for sure. Well, it's a similar idea. It's a furious big thing that a human being is at the whim of power at that level. On the creation of man. According to the myths, the immortal gods thought that it would be interesting to create beings similar to them, but mortal, in order to inhabit the earth. Prometheus and Epimetheus were spared imprisonment in Tartarus because they had not fought with their fellow Titans during the war with the Olympians. And so, Zeus gave them the task of creating man. Prometheus shaped man out of mud, and Athena breathed life into his clay figure. Prometheus had assigned Epimetheus the task of giving the creatures of the earth their various qualities, such as swiftness, cunning, strength, fur, and wings. By the time Epimetheus got to man, he had given all of the good qualities out to the other creatures, and there was nothing left for man. Because of this, Prometheus decided to make man stand upright and walk as the gods did, as well as to give them fire. Prometheus loved man more than the Olympians because they had banished most of his family to Tartarus. So, when Zeus decreed that man must present a portion of each animal they sacrificed to the gods, Prometheus decided to trick Zeus. He created two piles, one with the bones wrapped in juicy fat, the other with the good meat hidden in the hide. He then bade Zeus to pick which sacrifice he desired of man. Zeus chose the bones. Since he had given his word, Zeus had to accept that as his share for man's future sacrifices. In his anger over the trick, he took fire away from man. However, Prometheus lit a torch from the sun and brought it back again to give to man. Zeus was enraged that man once again had fire. He decided to inflict a terrible punishment on both man and Prometheus. To punish man, Zeus had Hephaestus create a mortal of stunning beauty. The gods gave the mortal many gifts of wealth. He then had Hermes give the mortal a deceptive heart and a lying tongue. This creation was Pandora, the first woman. A final gift was a jar that Pandora was forbidden to open. Zeus then sent Pandora down to Epimetheus, who was staying with man. Prometheus had warned Epimetheus not to accept gifts from Zeus, but he did not heed as Pandora's beauty was so great and he allowed her to stay. Eventually, Pandora's curiosity about the jar that she was forbidden to open became too great. She opened the jar 
and out flew all manner of evils, sorrows, plagues, and misfortunes. However, the bottom of the jar held one good thing, and that thing was hope. Zeus was angry at Prometheus for three things, being tricked on sacrifices, stealing fire for man, and for refusing to tell Zeus which of Zeus's children would dethrone him. Zeus had his servants, force and violence, seize Prometheus, take him to the Caucasus Mountains, and chain him to a rock with unbreakable adamanite chains. There he was tormented, day and night, by a giant eagle tearing at his liver. Zeus gave Prometheus two ways out of this torment. He could tell Zeus who the mother of the child that would dethrone him was, or meet two conditions. First, that an immortal must volunteer to die for Prometheus. Second, that a mortal must kill the eagle and unchain him. Eventually, Chiron the centaur agreed to die for him, and Heracles killed the eagle and unbound him. Uh, if I remember correctly, Heracles is just a different way of saying Hercules, but let's ask some simple questions here. That was a long bullet point, but at least now you've heard at least one version of the Promethean tale. Um, so let's ask the question. There's the, the What's the big director who did Blade Runner? Ridley Scott. So Ridley Scott makes, you know, another big blockbuster movie and he names it Prometheus. Why did he do that? Why did he choose this origin story of human beings to tell that tale? So in that movie, you can see exactly what's going on. Um, the, you're, you're looking at a, you know, a Hollywood version of how human beings were put on the world. But is it lost on anyone why he named the movie Prometheus? Now you know. According to Greek mythology, humankind passed through a number of eras that were characterized by specific events and were known in ancient Greece as the Ages of Man. Hesiod, a famous ancient Greek poet, recognized five ages, while Ovid, a Roman poet, believed there were only four. According to Hesiod, the five ages of man were as follows. So before we jump in, this is, this is the crux of things. What is hidden? What is encoded in these old tales? Um, and now we're getting down to it. They're going to start talking about the ages that human beings have been here. How many times have you heard us talk about what's the oldest calendar? Probably the Hebrew calendar. Well, why the hell does it start when it starts? Why is it that date? All these questions. How did we get here? How long have we been here? All these ideas, that's what's being addressed here or encoded in, in some way that we can't quite grasp, wholly grasp anymore. Um, but the main point is, is these are just not empty tales. They're holding important ideas. And by the way, if any of the timelines are at least accurately stacked in order, uh, this precedes most of the religions that exist in the world right now. The first is the Golden Age. And during the Golden Age of Man, the ruler of gods and men was the titan Cronus. Mankind lived harmoniously among the gods and interacted with them. There was an abundance of food that nature provided, and humans did not need to work. So they were able to live to a very old age, and when they died, it happened harmoniously and peacefully. All right, this is another version. How many people have heard the old, there was once a golden age when Saturn was our sun? That's what's being referenced here. Um, so is it literally that Saturn was our sun, or is it basically just saying that the idea of Kronos was the dominant force in our world, the light that guided everything? 
Um, these are hard things to know, but these are important ideas if there's anything to them. And unfortunately, there's so much time between when this was commonly taught and now we've lost quite a bit of information that we can regain, but we have to work at it to do so. Next, we have the Silver Age. Starting from the Silver Age until the time of Hesiod, it was believed that Zeus was the god of gods and ruler of the universe. Men would live as children for a hundred years, supported by their mothers, while as adults they lived for a very short time as they regularly clashed with each other. They did not pay tributes to the gods, for which reason Zeus killed all of them. <laughs> That's one way to end an age, huh? Go ahead. The Bronze Age. During this period, men were tough, trained, and warlike. They used bronze to create their weapons and dwellings, and eventually destroyed each other in wars. The end of this era was marked by the Great Flood of Deucalion. So, you know, people may be saying, uh, is there any reference into the modern age? Of course there is. What about the Olympics? That's the idea of the Olympians. Even we just went through the ages, which reflect the medals that are currently given, bronze, silver, and gold. Um, these same stories keep getting told over and over and over. Now let's take a moment to discuss the Great Flood before we finish with the ages. In Greek mythology, Deucalion was the son of Prometheus and either Clemeni, Hesion, or Pronoia, depending on the source of the story. He was born in the region of Achaea, Greece, and reigned in the area of Pythia. According to the myth, Zeus decided to end the Bronze Age because he was appalled at the actions of Lycaon, the king of Arcadia, who sacrificed a boy in the name of Zeus. And so, Zeus decided to start a torrential rain that would flood the whole world in order to clean it from the wrongs of humans. This deluge was intended to wash everything clean. Prometheus gave a warning to Deucalion, and Deucalion built a chest in which he and his wife Pyrrha would be able to survive. The flood lasted for nine days, and the couple were the only two surviving humans. They then decided to ask the Oracle of Themis on how to repopulate the earth. The Oracle told them to throw the bones of their mother behind their shoulder. Deucalion and Pyrrha decoded the mother as being Gaia, the mother of all, and her bones as rocks. So they threw rocks behind their shoulders, and they transformed into people. Deucalion and Pyrrha also had two children, Helen and Protogenia. Other sources mention Pandora II and Thea as being their children as well. The myth of Deucalion and Pyrrha is a version of the Biblical Flood, as well as the Sumerian Flood that is mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Deucalion thus is the Greek counterpart of the Biblical Noah and the Sumerian Utnapishtim. So, I would ask a simple question. If you can go through culture after culture, suppose time after time, no matter how far you go back, there's always the flood tell, the deluge. Uh, is there something important that refuses to die there? Is there an idea that keeps coming forward that has merit because of what it represents? And I would suggest to you that, yes, things that survive the test of time have merit. doesn't matter what they are. If they manage to stay around long enough, there's important ideas there. Um, so here's just another version of the flood, the flood myth, which must have a basis in something that matters, I would add. Continuing with the ages of man, we come to the heroic age. 
After three eras of mankind deteriorating in spirit, the Heroic Age was a step up from the Bronze Age. This was the time in which heroes and demigods lived, the great fighters whose deeds would be sung about for centuries to come. And we're living proof of it. Um, how often does Hollywood kick out another Troy movie, the, the Trojan War movie, or Achilles, or, you know, all these things? They're always being retold, retold, retold. And these are a lot of the archetypes that you see drawn from for a lot of the, well, <laughs> the modern movies are getting pretty horrible, but a lot of the stuff that we've seen Hollywood and even earlier stories draw from, this is the storyline era that they are pulling a lot of these archetypes from. Right, but in, in the modern time, the, the same stories are still being told, but I think what we'll end up covering at some point is the hero's journey has been bastardized. Um, the heroes are, well, many of them are not heroes. They're anti-heroes, for one thing. Um, but the other thing is they don't earn anything. And a big part of a lot of what was told here was people doing extraordinary deeds to merit being an honorable, an honorable or a special person. Um, that's the hero's journey, and that has almost become extinct in modern Hollywood telling. A lot of it, anyhow. Think of think of something like Captain America, right? He's a dude, he's got heart, they inject him with a drug, now he's a hero. You can see the difference. I've actually been looking into that already for a little while, and if you're intellectually honest with yourself, if you compare the actual steps of the hero's journey with especially the most modern stuff, you'll see that it's all a cheat and a lie. These things have no real value. There's no payoff. It's just these characters that are empty, I guess you would say. There's nothing to them. They don't earn anything. And I think that's just a further contribution to the destruction of our society. Yeah, degrading. It, you know what it is, Jason? It's what came out of the well, right? Looks like truth came out of the well, but there's no feet. That's not truth. That's the opposite of truth, and that's what you're pointing out. Um, and so, you know, if we were to look at the current age, how would we describe it if we were going to go back to the idea of iron, bronze? So, you know, where would we be in there? And in my estimation, we're at a point where we want to start lifting up, but everything is being held low, and we've been so kind of programmed into stupidity for so long, we got a lot of work to do to try to lift up again. And that's half the reason for episodes like this, is to bring back what commonly was taught to everybody who was going to know things about our world. Well, while we might have a lot of really cool toys to play with, I would think that we're actually going backwards at this point. The college mentality, the things being taught at university, for example, are filling these young folks full of absolute nonsense. They're convincing them that they have intellectual superiority and their educations are second to none, when in fact it's just the opposite because they're omitting massive things, yet filling them with this ignorant confidence that just makes them come off as smug idiots. Well, another part of it is things that, that get taught as fact, like the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory is impossible. It violates the laws of thermodynamics. Anyone can go online right now and find hardworking physicists that will tell you exactly that. Problem is, is they're not the popular guys. And they're also not the guys that get TV shows named after them to put forth erroneous ideas. They're now pushing out Images of black holes, same problem going on there. So does a law mean something? Is there a difference between a theory and a law? You see? Um, but they're teaching these so-called theories, which can be proven false by laws, 
And that's still into our textbooks. So everything is being done to lower consciousness at this point. And by the way, the technology is not helping. When I was young in school, uh, calculators had first come out that you could afford to have. And to a person, every math teacher I ever found back in the day said, you don't dare show up at this class cheating with a calculator, taking the lazy way out because you won't understand or memorize the, the, the formulas that you need to know. And you won't have on tap in your mind the things that I have because I grew up before calculators. But look where we are now. Is there any math class anywhere where someone's not using a calculator or a digital device? And that's not the half of it. Um, think about doing research. Right now, we sit down at a search engine. We want to know something. We take the information off the first damn page we get, whether it's Wikipedia or some other questionable source for accurate information. When I was younger, you had to damn well go to a library and you had to search for different books and you had to cross-reference. And if you wrote a paper of some kind, you had to cite where did you validate this information. We're a hell of a long way from these times and I'm with you all day long. While it does appear we've reached a time where the consciousness certainly wants to lift, everything else seems to be pushing the other way. I sincerely hope this whole thing that gets generally called the truth movement is the reality of mankind's spirit trying to fight back against this insanity that's being beaten down on us? There's a simple test in, in my view, um, and I have no idea which way it will come out, and sometimes I get very downhearted about it. Censorship, that's a good measure of everything. If you live in an age when censorship is afoot, you are not living in a high-minded age. That's all there is to it. You are living in the basement or deeper. Um, so... If we see a point where people demand the rights of a living human being to speak freely, to express themselves freely, um, these types of ideas, then you're starting to see the elevation of a worldwide society. What we see right now is the powers that be trying to lock it all down. And to me, that's the be-all and end-all measure. If we live in a world where people accept censorship, then we are low, and that's all there is to it. And the last age is the Iron Age. Hesiod believed he and his contemporaries were in the Iron Age, an age of desolation, destruction, and pain. Humans would fight against each other and would only care about themselves. Because of a lack of shame and indignation, humankind would destroy itself and the gods would abandon them. Well, can you argue with a description like that as a roundabout way of describing where we currently find ourselves? I mean, it may not be a perfect fit, but it's the closest one we've read so far. But I will maintain what makes a society is higher minds, common sense, adults acting like adults. And that's not really what we see right now. And a big part of it is because the media wants to put toilet humor in everything, wants to use low-minded language. Even all the, the food places, there's, there, I, I literally see commercials on about pizza places now that claim they have the extra most bestest pizza. What do you think's going on there? Is that a company trying to hold up the lofty ideals of a human mind, or is that the opposite thing going on there? Extra most bestest. Please, when my nephews were four and five, they spoke better English than that. Uh, I'm just saying. Extra most bestest. Not kidding. I haven't seen that one.
that is an actual real pizza commercial right now. Um, and it's, it's beyond the pale. And, and that sets aside all the other things that have gone on recently um, that have truly lowered uh, what it means to be a human being in, in this supposed information age, which it's quickly turning out not to be controlled information age, maybe um, the whole jackass onset of the jackass thing where people were convinced to harm themselves or others so they could get a worthless piece of video and try to derive some temporary fame. These times are testing, and it remains to be seen whether we lift up and come out the other side or we're, whether we're going to go dig a hole in the basement for a while. You've seen Idiocracy, I assume, right? Yeah, it's not far <laughs> off where we're headed, is it? I mean, it's hard, it's hard to say it's not. Uh, man, I, uh, whatever. Moving on. As mentioned earlier, according to the Roman poet Ovid, only four ages of man existed as he completely disregarded the heroic age. During the Golden Age, men were unable to travel far and could not explore the whole world. During the Silver Age, Jupiter, the Roman equivalent of Zeus, offered the seasonal change as well as the art of agriculture to men. For Ovid, the Bronze Age was also marked by warfare, while in the Iron Age, men were not only warlike, but also were disloyal and did not show respect to the gods. No matter what you want to say or think about any of what we're covering here, there was a period of time when people were asking the big questions. How long have we been here? How did we get here? What happened in all that time? When's the last time in the modern era you heard anyone that wasn't on a podcast like this asking these questions? These are higher-minded questions that have been asked since the beginning of time, yet we've become so self-indulgent that these questions don't typically get asked currently. So I guess what I'm saying is we're here to point this out and ask these questions. Now, before we move on to the descriptions of the Olympians, what do you think is the primary reason that these things would be emitted from any public education? Now, some people did go over the myths, but a lot of things were omitted even from that. From what I recall in, I believe it was third grade, but I may be forgetting which one it was, we went over them in detail, and we also compared and contrasted the difference between the Greeks and the Romans. But I'm wondering if I was given a slightly different education just because I was in what was called AG or academically gifted. That was what they called the program I was in. So I'm even wondering if there was a little bit of differentiation between what I was being taught, what we were being taught, and what the quote-unquote normal schools were being taught in the same school district. You know there was because Wayne, Wayne said he was not taught this and you guys were in the same district, but here's the point. This is the idiocracy idea, isn't it? In the modern era, we could see things like cursive writing being removed from the curriculum. Well, I got news for everybody. In the 1800s, people were not printing or using typewriters. They were writing in cursive. So what that does is it cuts off an entire generation from being go able to go back and read documents, histories, or anything from a given time period. But this is really no different than removing these classics from school. As I've pointed out many times, in my late 40s, I had friends in the 70s. We were growing plants together, and they all knew all the classics. They spoke Latin. They spoke Greek. Some of them wrote both of those languages. Um, this is a stark departure, and the reason for it is is because it's creating kind of a caste system. You know, it's the, what's that old Hollywood movie where Rex Harrison 
chooses a girl who speaks Cockney and makes a bet, I can teach her to speak like we speak so she won't be stuck in her low caste. And he cites that simply the way she speaks ensures she'll be a gutter rat for her entire life, basically. Same idea going on here. Isn't that what the movie Trading Places was taken off of, that idea? Sure, it's the same story being told in a slightly more modern way, but of course. And at the end of the day, who's pulling the strings? The big money guys on Wall Street. That's what we're talking about. But when you remove the classics, when you remove all the learning base from a time when people were asking, how did we get here? How long have we been here? What are the true aspects of our natural world? Um, You're lowering human minds. And we can cite many examples. Even, you know, Jason, we were prepping up for an episode we never did where someone emailed me a curriculum from a fifth grade school in the early 1900s and showed me that the math they were proficient at in the fifth grade was above what a high school senior walks away with now. You can see what's going on here. It's simply the lowering of the human intellect. Oh, if you've never seen these things, just Google eighth grade test, I think it is, late 1800s, early 1900s. And while some of it is very agrarian, as in it's farm centric. Which is important. That's the natural world. But go ahead. Right. You will see the level of understanding that these children had to have just to be able to cope with everyday life. And I'll tell you, man, it's not the coddling by far that you see in the modern era. No. And as a matter of fact, there is a clean division line that we can all see. So back in the time Jason's talking about where the education level is at that level, uh, what kind of architecture are you seeing? You're seeing all these beautiful marble stone um, edifices, even here where I live in Rhode Island. And low about the 30s or so, that starts to peter off. And by the time you're coming out the back of World War II, it's almost non-existent. Now, here where I am, they were making stone statues. They were carving granite. The buildings were beautifully architected, uh, quite often with stone. There's the difference. There is the difference. Now we live in crappy boxes and rectangles in the angles of sorrow made of sheetrock made in China, for crying out loud. There's your line in the sand. There's the difference between a more fundamentally educated society and where we are now. All right, Jason, that, that's about it for uh, hour one of episode 173. These are important ideas, and I hope people can understand why they're important ideas. When we come back for hour two, we're going to get into the Olympians. And again, I can't tell you how many times even Walt Disney has been engaged in retelling these stories. So while they're not teaching it in school, it's almost like they're slyly keeping it alive in movies that most people don't recognize the value of, or or maybe not the value, but the the message there. So we hope that you'll join us all at crow777radio.com, and we're going to draw some lines over in the the second hour as well. So last couple of things, uh, Shoot the Moon, the movie has won three or four awards now. Uh, It's been accepted in at least four uh, film festivals, I think. Maybe more. I haven't kept up 100%. We also have a a t-shirt shop, which from Crow 777 Radio you can get to. It's not about making money. It's about getting the web address out into the world free of censorship. And lastly, we hope you'll join us at Truth Frequency Radio Sunday nights at 6 p.m., Eastern Standard Time for Crow 777 Live. It's all free. There's a free live chat. But please come join us for the second hour of these old, important narratives at crow777radio.com. Cheers.